Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Tuesday episode of Off Track with Hinch and or Rossi, I think is how we like to say that one on Tuesdays, because you never know what you're going to get. Unfortunately, Tim is here today, but very fortunately, we are joined by a a very special guest, uh, one of of my best friends on earth, one of the most impressive gentlemen behind the wheel of a motor vehicle of any kind. Uh, I raced against him in go-karts. I raced against him in Formula Atlantic cars. I raced with him in A1GP cars. I raced with slash against him in Indy cars. And now he is well on his way to an incredibly successful sports car career. If you haven't figured it out, you know nothing about IndyCar racing or my life. Uh, and if you are listening to this, you probably have figured it out. We are joined by Robert Wickens today. Hello, Robbie. Hey, what an what an intro! And you know well, why? I didn't even yeah. pre-write that. That one was and just I right get, off the top And of I my get head. is unfortunately here. <laughs> I uh, just to compare the two of those. <laughs> if if you if you compare your respective accomplishments, I think I was actually pretty generous. I hadn't and, thought of it that way. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's, it make it starts to make more sense. <laughs> oh man! Okay, Rob, we're gonna go all the way back and tell people. It's, well, it's the story of how you got started in racing, but then it kind of quickly also can be the story of how you and I met in motorsports. So what was your kind of path into the sport as a kid? Yeah, so my path into, into racing was, you know, it's a, it's a wives' tale of my parents explaining it to me. But <laughs> basically, I was uh, a very energetic young child. Um, that couldn't stay still until they sat me in front of a TV and there happened to be a race car, an automotive race on TV. And uh, I just, Automotive race, the best Automotive car. race, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I have no idea what it was, NASCAR, Formula One, kart. I, don't, I have no idea, right? But uh, needless to say, you know, they're like, oh, well, maybe he likes cars. So then they bought me some toy cars and then I started playing with toy cars. Um, wasn't your like second word ever a car? Well, what's scary to me, I don't know the answer to that, but what's scary to me is that the first like legitimate word that I think Wesley has said has been car. <laughs> I could have um, sworn I've heard your mom say that that was your, uh, that was your first word. Or I, was hoping, your first I was hoping his was going to be, you know, like golf. Golf. <laughs> Tennis. Calculator. Right. Yeah. right. Um, Accounting. Yeah. 
law. <laughs> um, no, but uh, yeah, so I, I might might be in for it. But so back back to my little journey. Um, started just yeah playing with cars, loved racing, and then because it was always on TV, the whole family kind of started becoming fans. Um, we went to a NASCAR race in Michigan when I think I was like five. Um, that was our first real taste of motorsport. Um, and it was, yeah, I think we all got hooked. Um, my mom who, uh, was a school bus driver at the time, um, instead of hiring, you know, a babysitter, uh, while she was working, I would just go on the bus with her and just sit on the bus and I'd have my toy cars and I'd just be doing my thing. And, uh, there was a kid on her school bus, uh, route, 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 route. Route, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tim? Hey, it's not it's not get your kicks down on Route 66. All right. So conversation. It can can go either way. It can go either way. All right. Um but yeah, the the kid uh raced go-karts. So the next day he brought in photos of him racing go-karts. Um and then we decided that weekend to go check it out. It was at uh it was in Waterloo. We were living in Guelph, Ontario, so it was about 15 minutes down the road. And when we got to the cart track, there was little kids running around with race suits on. And uh, the person on the bus was probably, I don't know, seventh grade, eighth grade, right? So it wasn't that, uh, you know, he was old to me. Right. Uh, but then when I saw little kids doing it, I was like, this this is it. This is what I want to do. And um, at the time, I was playing baseball, football, basketball, like kind of just every sport. I was about to start hockey that winter. And, um, my parents said, you know, if you want to try racing go-karts, you can't play hockey with all your friends. So you need to make a decision what you want to do. And also racing is quite expensive. So you won't be able to play baseball, football, or anything else. If you want to try go-karts. I like and how they're the- very clearly trying to talk you out of it at this point. Like you can't play hockey with all of your friends. You also yeah. cannot do any of the other sports that you're already doing and clearly enjoy. So what with decision would you friends. like to make yeah. with all? Yeah. I feel like everybody I talk to in racing, when I'm like, oh, my brother wants to get my nephew into, they're like, don't, you guys, you shouldn't, you shouldn't yeah. do that. He should just get into normal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so we, we, I decided to do it. We, we went, we bought a used go-kart. It was one-stop shopping. It came with suit tires, the trailer, the tool, like anything you need to go racing. Um, then that spring we turn up for the, uh, I guess the open test and we go to pay our entry fee, um, not knowing anything about the sport. And I was, uh, I was too young to do it by, <laughs> by one year. Um, so my older brother, Trevor, who's five years older, they're like, well, we have this go-kart. Let's just, you know, change the uh, restrictor plate in it to, to suit his needs and, and let's have him do it for a year. So the whole first year of us racing as a family, I was actually sidelined. No way. Well, uh, my brother Trevor drove around. So it was, uh, that was a tough year, James, not going to lie. So I'd already, hey, given up all my, likes- already given up all my sports. Oh, good call. That's a great point. I mean, the yeah. money's gone now, right? You bought the go-kart. And so yeah. now you can't play hockey and basketball and baseball and football. And you have to watch. Drivers hate sitting at the side of the racetrack, watching other people drive. So I get it. And also Trevor, bless him. He, was, he didn't have that uh, competitive hunger to him well i mean it turned out he does but just in a different way exactly and yeah 
that's what's kind of cool, man. I mean, one of the things that I've always admired about you and your family and your guy's story is every driver has their story of how they got to where they are, right? If you're one of the very few that are fortunate enough to make a career in this business, in this sport, the, the stories of how they get there are varied incredibly. And yours was always, you know, and, and you always talk about, and it's the same for me. It's the same for every driver you talk to. Like if you don't have that unwavering support from your family from the get-go, it's basically impossible, right? Yep. The things yep. that need to be done, the sacrifices that need to be made. But, but you and your family like took that to a level that I just, I, I just thought was incredible and amazing. And like yours, your story is like the, mortgages on the house to keep the cart on the track and you know your brother and so to kind of get back to his competitive nature he became your mechanic right at what age did did trevor start kind of being your tuner on your go-kart yeah so i think basically so we can rewind to 1996 which was the year that we were supposed to where i was supposed to drive my first year right um but being too young my brother drove 1997 I did my first year of karting um, and my brother was already, so let's see, I was, he would have been 12, 12 years old, 13, 12, 13. Yeah. Somewhere there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he was already, you know, I'm glad you asked was, us cause I, I'm, I'm the one that knows. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Get on Wikipedia. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, so basically his whole year of karting, Monday to Friday, he was stripping the cart down to nothing, rebuilding it, cleaning it. That was what he loved about it. And then actually once the weekend rolled around, he didn't really care to drive that much. Um, and uh, yeah, so then when I took over the following year, you know, my parents told me the family plan was both kids try go-karts for a year and then say we did it and move on. Um, thankfully I had some early, early success and, and a lot of people were, I guess, laughing of how poor our equipment was for how competitive we were. And then we were given suggestions on how we could make it better. And we did, and then we started winning races and, um, but yeah, so Trevor became my mechanic as early as, as 12 years old at the time, obviously it was more like a tag team between my dad and my brother. Um, by the time Trevor was 16, and he had his driver's license, it very quickly became him and I going off to local tracks for testing or, or doing whatever we had to do um, because both our parents were working. And, and then, yeah, so, I mean, I give my life to motorsport. You know, the relationship I have with my brother, he's five years older than me. I have close friends that have brothers of similar ages and, and they never had the relationship like Trevor and I had. You know, we had our normal you know, adolescence arguments and, and stuff like that. But once we got to the racetrack, it was always business. And I can't remember the last time my brother and I even had a kind of confrontation or an argument. It's just always been, we just know each other so well. So if he needs space or if, if he needs that kind of slap in the ass that he needs to set him straight and vice versa for me, like he's always that sounding board now in my life that if, uh, if something comes up in my career or if, or if I have a question, I always go to him first because I know I'm going to get an unfiltered and, and, and raw answer. Like that, that was, yeah, that was always my favorite thing about you too, right? Is because, you know, when we, so when you and I started racing against each other, uh, we were at a level of the sport where 
you've got like a dedicated mechanic at the track with you and we're traveling all over Canada and the U S and it's like a whole thing. And you know, that was Trevor's, like, that was his job at this point. Like it became a family tag team weekend thing to like, it evolved into him working essentially with you on this. And I always admired the fact that like, you just you had somebody there that would just tell it to you how it is and you guys could fight it out the way siblings do which is like a lot more constructive i think than if someone's trying to tiptoe around someone they're like quote unquote working for or whatever right like yep. i would stand there like track side with him sometimes if you're out on track and like he'd be like, what is he doing why is he doing the and then you'd come in and you'd be like you gotta do this 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 and this you're like don't tell me what to do like i'm gonna tell you and you'd go back and forth and then you'd go out and you would do it like it would always just it always just worked right it was this it was this kind of awesome relationship and the way you dedicated yourself to motorsports he did from the other side of pit lane basically and yep. now he's grown that into an incredibly successful career as a go-kart team owner go-kart track owner and like powerhouse in the kart racing world and it's just awesome to see like i remember these two kids standing at the side of the racetrack in sutton or innisfil or goodwood or whatever and you fast forward 20 years and you're both killing it in these respective areas of the sport and I think it's just so cool that you got to kind of you cut you got to kind of go on that journey, those separate journeys, but together with your brother. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't realize as well is, you know, while my brother was was going through high school, you know, the the cart team that James and I raced for when, when we met was a team called First Cart. Um, they were based in Guelph, Ontario, where where I'm from, and uh, you know, Monday to Friday after school my brother and I would, would meet at a predetermined location that morning on our bikes. And after school, we would, we would go to first garden. Trevor was, was an employee. He worked after school from call it, you know, four to eight o'clock every night, never saw a paycheck. So it all went into basically store credits to buy us tires, parts, whatever we needed for, for that weekend or to, you know, help, help pay off our debts. And, you know, I, I would go to the shop as well, but, you know, I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. So I don't think I was We're contributing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was the guy like inventorying gears. Right. To just count how many, you know, 72 tooth gears they have in the shop. And I, did, I think they already knew it. I think they just wanted to keep me out of the way. But no, but it also gave you an appreciation for the effort that Trevor's putting in to help you kind of stay in the go-kart. It was great. And for then, sure. you know, your, your parents obviously, you know, gave everything and you guys had your motor home that you traveled around the, the country and the, and the continent. in. I got to ride with you on that a bunch of times, which was always fun crossing country. And, and yeah, it was just, it was just so cool to kind of see how the whole family really had to put everything into, to your racing to the group's racing for, for this tall work. Ah, the sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. At once, starting at forty dollars a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're going to do a little bit of, you know, fast-forwarding here. Um, you get into cars, immediately successful. Formula BMW, immediately successful there. Uh, at the world finals in Formula BMW, you get recognized by a little company called Red Bull, uh, which though they make energy drinks are kind of big in the motorsport space as well. And you get signed up to a junior driver development deal. I, I mean, at the time, you know, Red Bulls, they've got F1 teams, they've got a ton of athletes, uh, they're big into motorsport driver development, and you get the call to join this program. Like, how cool is that phone call? to join one of the most sort of prestigious driver development programs in the world. Yeah, that was very unique, right? Cause the Red Bull junior team was just getting started. So we're, we're now into the end of 2005. So testing my knowledge here, but I think they had just started Toro. So like they just bought it from Minardi, like maybe 2005 or 2004. Um, so they're just getting like properly into like the powerhouse, what they wanted to be in Formula One. And uh, for me, I just finished my first year of Formula BMW USA. Um, and they were doing a, a world finals race. So for those of you who don't know, Formula BMW, there was several regions of it, similar to what like Formula 4 is now around the world, where there was one in the US, there was one in Europe, one in Asia, um, et cetera. So there was, uh, they were all meeting at, a track for, for a grand final, for a world final. It was in Bahrain and um, told my parents, like, this is something I have to do it. And we had no idea how we were going to do it, but it was like the winner gets a formula one test. The winner becomes a world champion. I'm like, those are two things I want to do. <laughs> those and, neat. Yeah. And uh, we're trying to figure out how we could do it. Either sounds neat. Both sounds even better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had no funding for the next year, even for former BMW for 2006. Um, I had just become, I, th I think I was the top rookie in the 2005 former BMW championship. So I got the former BMW scholarship from BMW for the next year, which comes with some financial uh, help. Um, I convinced BMW North America to front load the scholarship so I could blow the whole load on one race at the world finals. And uh, so that was how we got the funding to go down to Bahrain. And we went down there thinking I was going to have a shot at the world championship and, and the formula one test. Um, we qualified on pole 
to soon get disqualified for technical infringement. And um, from, from from there, it was just a, an uphill uphill battle. I had to start all three qualifying heats from last, and um, came through the field in, in all three um, set fast lap in all three heats. And at that point, Helmut Marco and Christian Horner were were at the race because there were Red Bull Junior drivers that I was competing against. So then we started having some conversations, and um, yeah, one thing led to another. And I uh, after the qualifying heats after starting each heat in 36th or whatever it was, um, I was starting seventh for the pre-final. Um, I was passing an old friend, uh, Sam bird for third in the race and uh, we had contact and I got a puncture. So I had to start the final, you know, for the world championship in 34th after passing what felt like a hundred cars. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the whole way and uh, ended up finishing sixth in, in the race. Um, so I didn't get my world championship. I didn't get my Formula One test, but I did leave that event with uh, with the Red Bull contract. Um, at the time, I was too young to sign it on the spot. So I had to take it home. And uh, it made for some interesting reading material on that uh, very long flight home from Bahrain back to Toronto. So Yeah, no doubt. No it doubt. was... Uh, you know, although I, I didn't win, I felt like it was a win because I had no future security. I was basically just racing for my career at the time. And uh, and that was, you know, if you got the results and if you kept them satisfied, you, it had a path to Formula One. And that, that's all I could have hoped for. It, it, it was kind of like a lost the battle, but won the war sort of thing, right? You didn't get well, your race win, but getting that contract was a bigger career thing for sure. Well, exactly, because I roped into that contract again. You know, I was 16 years old, but it had like F1 options in it, right? And how much I would get paid if I if they did use me in Formula One. I was just like, "There's there's zeros on that." Yeah, money sounds neat yeah. when it's coming this way. Yeah, <laughs> it's like well, um, all I have to do is get there now. And I like to tell this part of the story, uh, which is the day before you left for Bahrain, you came and visited me. Um, I was at university and we had just a nice quiet evening together where I think I mentally prepared you for what you were about to do in that following weekend. So like, I want to lightly take 23 to 26% credit for honestly, that feels low. That feels low. You I was going to be, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to be modest about it. Eh, I'll take more. <laughs> you, uh, cause I'm, made, I'm claiming 10 and I didn't even meet him until well after that. So we gave you some life experience let's put it that way um so red bull contract in hand they've now got a plan for you obviously to try to get to formula one right so you're over in europe now you're racing in junior categories uh was the first one gp3 no so my my first season as a red bull driver oh it's actually atlantic yeah uh before that so for bmw i went back 2006 won the championship Right. And 07 did Atlantics right. at the end of 07 because, you know, I think the season finished in like September or something. Um, I was sent off to Europe straight after the, the Atlantic finale to uh, ironically take Sebastian Vettel's uh, Formula Renault 3.5 seat because he had already been promoted into what I'd imagine was Toro Rosso. Toro Rosso, yeah. At the time. Um, yeah, it was like yeah, in the middle so, of the season, so, right? Yeah, so I think there was two rounds left in the year in Estoril and, and Barcelona. 
And um, yeah, just one thing Red Bull does so well is it's a sink or swim type of environment. So you get thrown in, no testing. Um, let's see how you do. So brand new car, first time racing in Europe. Um, and we did all right. I don't think I set the world on fire, but I scored points in all four races. Um, and it was enough for Red Bull to decide that they wanted me to race in that championship in 2008. Um, which subsequently during that winter was when you and I met again in a one GP and, um, and yeah, so from there, 2008 was probably the busiest year of my, of my life. I think, you know, I ended up being almost this like super sub for Red Bull where anytime, and it happened quite often, but anytime a, a driver was laid off, it seemed like I was the driver filling in until I could find a full-time vacancy full-time replacement so you know that year i did a1 gp a full season of formula renault 3.5 um three quarters of a season of formula 3 euro series it ended up being like 48 races in in, in one year just in 2008 oh and that was definitely like, like a sprint car much. driver schedule yeah um you know a1 gp was all over the world and for the rest rest of it was just all in europe but um, I won races in all three categories, which, you know, within Red Bull and the junior team, you can imagine how competitive it was. There was 18 of us in that 2008, 2007 season. Um, so, you know, in every, every weekend you would see, um, you know, on the Red Bull junior team website, who accomplished what, and there'd be a leaderboard of how many wins each driver has. And it was just like right there in plain sight. And like, you knew you had wow. to win to, to stay on. And so like, I was looking through my season, I was just like, man, if I have my name in every box, you know, wins, podiums, polls, fast laps. So I'm like, I'm, I can, I think I'm okay. But like, I only had three wins and like people that were racing in like British Formula 3 or like a local, you know, one Formula Renault at the time, they would run like a regional in the European Cup. So they'd be doing like double the races. So I'm like, they have double the opportunities to like win, yeah. but it's the same car. So they right. don't have to learn a new car. Like I was bouncing between three different cars. Yeah. Um, but I did win one race in each category, which um, I didn't realize. That's got to count for something. To yeah. So at, look at, at the end that. of the year, they, uh, you know, they do a little stat sheet. And I was apparently the first driver in Red Bull junior team history to achieve that. Um, so although I didn't like set the world on fire on that stat chart, I guess it was enough to keep me for then 2009, where they put me in F2. Um, not the F2 that we know now, but, uh, a different formula two. And that was really my make or break year with, with Red Bull. They told me I need to win a championship to stay on. I didn't have any, uh, personal funding behind me. Red Bull was footing the whole bill. So I was a bit of a expense on their part. So I had to prove that I, that I deserved it. Yeah. Cause a lot of guys on that program, though they were part of the program, they still would have some of their own personal funding, right? Red Bull wasn't yeah. necessarily writing the whole check for the season where for you, you were fully backed by Red Bull. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, it was, I was probably one of the more expensive drivers. So it was, you know, I needed to win the championship to prove my wealth because from worth, not wealth. Um, <laughs> if you had wealth, this would have been a problem. Yeah. <laughs> problem would have been solved. Um, because, yeah, the, really the next step after that, you know, it was a bit of an unknown because Red Bull wasn't supporting GP2 at the time. Um, it was either Formula One or go over to Japan and do Super Formula or at the time Formula Nippon. So 
Um, I long story short, I did not win the championship. I finished second. But I want to, I want, I'll add the caveat that F2 at the time, like you said, a very different series was, correct me if I'm wrong, the series owned all the cars, right? Correct. Yeah. And so there were teams, but it was more like a, was a I don't want to say a glorified school series because it was a very high level. It was a very good car, but it was trying to be operated in a more cost-effective way. So it wasn't each team takes its cars back to a <clears throat> shop or whatever. They kind of went back to a central location. They were mainly prepared by the same group of people. The teams kind of ran them on the weekend, but it was more like an arrive and drive program in a lot of ways. And you finished second in the championship it was also the first year of this championship and it was a, it was a bespoke car that was made. Um, new cars have teething problems and because one team couldn't dedicate all the time and energy to figuring those problems out. It was a group of people that was doing it for all 30 cars or whatever. You had what? Six mechanical DNFs that year. Uh, yeah, six, six or seven of 14 races. So, right. So you finished yeah. second in the championship on the back of the car failing you half the time. And this, this is where I, this is where I take personal issue with your. I'm glad you're uh, building the excuses for me, James. <laughs> well, this is, I've always taken personal excuse with this because Red Bull said championship or bust. You did not win the championship and they dropped you, but it's bull like it, that was not, that was not a fair fight. And I've, I've always taken issue with that. And I'm, you, you're clearly over it and you're a bigger man than me, but <laughs> I've always, I've always struggled with that one a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at the time, you know, I thought my, my life was over, right. When I got that phone call from Holland Marco and he informed me that, you know, there's no longer a place for me on the team. You know, I was, you know, I definitely cried for a bit. You know, I remember exactly where I was. I was at a hotel and outside of Silverstone, and I was just alone in this hotel room and like, I didn't even have phone credits to call home. And it was like just this weird situation. Um, so I had to like get on Skype and Wi-Fi. It was crap. And it was a whole thing to tell my family what happened, but uh, you know, and what it didn't take long after to kind of think a couple of weeks down the road where it was almost a blessing because the way Red Bull kind of, they were, they were at that time. They had just signed Mark Weber um, on a long-term contract. Sebastian Vettel was now in, into the main Red Bull car. Toroso was pretty much set for quite a while. You know, like it was basically almost like a log jam where I feel like, yes, they told me win or bust. I didn't. But also, you know, like I said, they weren't supporting GP2 um, at, the, at that time in, in their journey. So there really wasn't a place for me to race. The only option was to go over to Japan and, and go race in Super Formula. And I guess it was just something they didn't want to do. So um, they released me and it kind of set me free to, to do yeah, what I wanted. And it was, it was scary. You know, obviously I was back to trying to find funding and, and trying to make my way. Um, but then I raced in GP3, which was another uh, first year for that car. Um, you know, one thing that was weird about my career is I always joined categories in the first year of a series. Yeah, you did. Um, minus four BMW, Atlantics, A1GP, I guess. But like my first year of 3.5, it was a brand new car that year. So like constant development, 2009, brand new car in F2, GP3, 2010, brand new car. So like I was always developing, which 
in hindsight, I think is what made me to be such a, the driver I am now, right? Like the ability to build a car from scratch to how you want it, you know, it, it's something that I think a lot of drivers nowadays don't get to do. You know, yeah, you the, step into a team that's run a car for the last five years and they say, this is our general setup philosophy. Yeah. And, and here's how you me. have to drive it. You have right. to trail break to apex. You have to go on throttle early. You have to do right. this, and that, right? Like the team knows exactly how to get the performance out of it. Where for me, it was like, I knew how I liked to drive and we could just always build cars around it. And yeah. I think that's why, you know, I never, apart from me winning the championship with Carlin, in 2011, in my second attempt at Formula Renault 3.5, it was the only time I had been in the championship winning team. Right. Prior to that, it was always been not like a wild card team, but you know they, they weren't the sexy previous front running team. But with right. the new cars, with the opportunities of, of building what you wanted, um, we we could always find success. And yeah. You know, I finished second in the championship in F2. I finished second in the championship in GP3. And, you know, I was kind of this constant vice champion person all through Europe, but not getting the championships until uh, until 2011 when I finally won the Formula Renault 3.5 championship. And then things things get interesting from there. But we, uh, we're out of time for today, but this is very clearly a conversation that is not over. So we're going to let you go now. We're going to let, uh, the, let the people listen to the first half of the Robbie Wicken story. And then next week, we're going to come back with the juicy details of your launch into professional motorsports as a factory driver with Mercedes and DTM, Formula One tests, IndyCar, and eventually we will get to the culmination of a lot of hard work over the last little while with your IMSA championship. So thanks for joining us this week, guys. Tune in next week for part two with Mr. Robbie Wiggins. This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Off Track is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. We're at Ask Off Track on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us on Twitter individually, I'm at Hinchtown. He's Alexander Rossi. And if you want to follow Tim, though we have no idea why you would, he's at the Tim Durham on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel for exclusive video content. Off Track is produced by Tim Durham, and by that we mean Tim. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.